We're back with another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead. Ron, we've uh, we've waded into energy. What a big topic, a dense topic, because the, the numbers, there are so many numbers here that you have to take into account and, and start to look at the scope of what we're talking about here. And we, we sort of left off last time talking about Tesla's big battery gigafactory down in the Nevada desert and how it would take thousands of them over the next you know few years to get us up to the level of demand that we could draw from on those and of course that's not going to happen overnight so let's let's talk a little bit more about those areas like solar and wind power and they've been around for a while now like here in Alberta if you go down south of the Pincher Creek area there's huge wind farms down there they've been in California for the last probably two or three decades are the best days in development of those behind us now well if you haven't uh, if you're just tuning into this show this week uh, what you probably want to do is go back and, and uh, listen to last week's show first because what we're talking about is just physically why it's going to take longer to develop all these technologies than uh, many of the uh, uh, green cheerleaders think and uh, certainly we're not here uh, holding up uh, a flag saying that it isn't going to happen because renewable energy is the energy of the future. It's just very difficult for it to take place in anywhere close to the timelines that are being put out by cheerleaders for the industry. And so if you're an investor, you've got to have a clear idea of what is going to happen and how long it's going to take. And for example, people have been touting the fact that solar technologies have improved lately and will continue to become cheaper and more efficient. Uh, but frankly, the era of tenfold gains in efficiency is over. The physical boundary for silicon voltaic cells is a maximum conversion rate of 34% of photons into electrons. And currently, the best commercial PV technology, or photovoltaic technology, uh, today exceeds 26%. So, yeah, they, there's a... a quite a, a ways to go. There's another 8% of gains that, that that are theoretically they can make. But typically, those opportunities to get 10 or 15 times the efficiency are behind us because a lot of the technology is already in place. Now, for wind power technology, uh, here again, there's no tenfold gains left. The physical boundaries for a wind turbine, they're called the BETS limit, is a maximum capture of 60% of kinetic energy in moving air. And commercial turbines today exceed 40%. So yes, there is room for improvement. You expect to see a lot more improvement. But the days of, of, of tenfold improvements, they're just not there anymore. And we should note that that you're quoting these these numbers from a, a fascinating book called The New Energy Economy, an exercise in magical thinking by Mark P. Mills, who is he, he's got no skin in the game here. He's he's a physicist. Is that not correct? Yes, and uh, frankly, I think he's more of a reality seeker than anything else. He's just talking about the fact that, yes, we're going to be able to do all these things, but there's uh, a time sequence that has to be followed sequentially, which pushes out the, the end result further. No matter what we do, Physically, things just can't happen as fast as, as, uh, as and we're calling this section uh, renewable energy enters fantasy land because many of the projections of what's going to happen in the future 
are frankly impossible, as as we're beginning to show. Okay, so now we've been talking about battery storage, and that, that that's a key component here. Let's talk a little bit about the energy required to mine and fabricate these materials for batteries is something that's really high as well. You know, in, in rough terms, it requires the energy equivalent of about 100 barrels of oil to fabricate a quantity of batteries that uh, can store a single barrel of oil equivalent energy. And this, uh, uh, once again, I, I suggest that uh, you go back to Mark Mill's report if you want to do any study. Uh, he's taken and he's got lots of uh, references to, to research that he's done. But here again, to, to have 100 barrels of oil to fabricate a quantity of batteries that can store a single barrel of oil equivalent, that's a lot of energy. And frankly, batteries can be used over and over and over again, and that's their saving grace. But still, they're very energy intensive to make. And the other thing is, too, and I've seen a number of reports on this, like some of this stuff's hard to find. So the increase in mining activity is, is going to be a huge scale as well. Yeah, and of course, people don't like oil and gas uh, because of the fact of what it does to the environment. But when you're looking at mining things like uh, to to get the amount of, of materials needed to have a an electric future is enormous. In an all-battery future, global mining would have to expand by 200% for copper, at least 500% for minerals like lithium and graphite, and the number for cobalt, I don't even know what that is. That's that's even a, a lot more. And, of course, any time you dig down and you pull uh, minerals out, you create uh, a cavity in the Earth's surface. You have water or groundwater problems. A lot of times you have leaking. You have to, you have to seal that area off, which, which never is all that effective. So the environmental impact, you think you don't like oil and gas? Wait till you see the increase in mining activity and the environmental problems that you get and the eventual pushback you get because, frankly, these things are not, batteries are not energy neutral by any, or, or environmentally neutral by any stretch of the imagination. And a lot of these things are made overseas or mined overseas, like China produces a lot of rare earths. Why? Because we won't allow them to be produced in North America because of the environmental hazards they produce. But we're happy to have them produced in China because it's out of sight and out of mind. And that is only going to go on for so long before we start getting a lot of pushback on that as well. There's a stat here. 50 to 100 pounds of various materials are mined, moved, and processed for one pound of battery produced. Those numbers so are... far, it's been uh, a wonderful world because we've managed to push this off into countries in South America, uh, third world countries where we do the mining and the degradation it causes. It, it isn't something that appears on the news every night. But as these people in these countries start to see that we're destroying their environment so we can have a faster battery for our cell phone or we can drive around an electric car, that isn't going to go on forever. They're not going to allow us to sully their backyard to uh, meet our consumer desires. That it, it, it will just end, and that's the problem, is that it requires a lot of stuff that, frankly, isn't all that environmentally friendly to go into this e-movement. 
Okay, let's talk about an area that is, well, it's been talked about a lot over the last several years, and you see, uh, you know, maybe a, a bit of a growing trend there about EVs, electric vehicles, as opposed to an internal combustion engine. Well, you know, here again, a lot of people are moving to electric cars with very good intentions because they're cutting their energy signature. And uh, it helps them feel better that they're doing their part for the environment. And certainly governments like Germany, France, Britain, and California are calling for an outright ban of internal combustion engines here over the next 10 or 20 years. And as a result, optimists have been forecasting that the number of electric vehicles uh, in the world is going to rise from today's nearly 4 million to 400 million vehicles in two decades. And they feel that that will uh, change the dynamics as to how much carbon we're producing. But uh, that will decrease oil demand by barely 6%. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but the numbers are pretty straightforward. Going forward, by 2040, there's an estimated to be 2 billion cars on the, world, on the, on the road. So if only 400 million of those cars are electric, 400 million EVs would amount to about 20% of all the cars on the road, which would thus reduce uh, or replace about 6% of the world's petroleum demand because cars generally produce about 30 or use about 30% of the world's oil. So we're talking literally 6% of carbon emissions being reduced because of reduced demand if everybody went to electric. So we should point out nearly as big a saving as everybody talks about. Yeah, and and we should point out in there that the the estimate is that today, 2020, there are about 1 billion cars on the road. So you're saying by 2040, we would double that number. You know, we have economies like China and India and Brazil. These are countries that are coming out of poverty in a lot of respects. There's more of a developing middle class. Those people are buying vehicles. You can just see where this is going. You can see it going up, and you start to think, well, how do we get the savings on the other side? I mean, the numbers just don't make sense, do they? No, the numbers uh, don't make sense over a compressed time horizon, for sure. Okay, let's talk about again about this poverty issue. As as third world nations start to come out of poverty, things are going to be changing. The the demand for energy is only going to go up, isn't it? Yeah, when the world's poorest four billion people increase their energy consumption by to just fifteen percent of the per capita level that frankly you and I and our listeners use every day, fifteen percent of what we use. Global energy consumption will rise by the equivalent of adding an entire United States worth of demand. So what happens when they go to 30% or 45% of what we use? There again, it's going to take an awful lot of battery-powered storage and wind and solar and uh, all the other types of renewables we have to meet this. So this is a very big number, and of course, a lot of people just aren't including the fact that Third world nations aren't standing still. They look at us, they watch uh, TV, they see our lifestyles, and they want to have lifestyles too. They want a roof over their head, they want a television in the living room, they want a computer, uh, they want all the things that require energy to be able to get them to where they want to be. Boy, oh boy, and when you think, you know, going back to the electric vehicles, if you've got 400 million of them, 
on the road, you, you got to plug them in and charge them. Uh, you know, the drain on the system, and and how's that generate? How is that electricity going to be generated? Boy, I, it just the the scope of this absolutely to me is mind boggling. Let's talk about too how energy efficiency has historically created more energy demand, not less. Yeah, I mean, typically, the less energy you need to produce a dollar of gross domestic product just means that things become more efficient and there's more money that can go into other things and it actually the economy expands as a result and generally when the economy expands energy demand goes up as well so even though the world has becoming become more efficient in their use of energy energy demand continues to go up and as we get more efficiency demand goes up even faster so the idea that uh, energy demand is going to shrink, especially with these 4 billion people coming out of, of poverty, them getting into efficient lifestyles where they're not just subsistence farming for a dollar a day, they're going to be using more energy. And as they make more money, they're going to use more energy. They're going to get more efficient. They're going to use even more energy. So it is uh, a self-fulfilling circle. You know, I was just together with uh, a bunch of amigos here in the last couple of nights, and, and guys that are in business, you know, they're businessmen, they're in different businesses, a, a diversity of, of businesses going on. And, and of course, we're talking politics, and we're, we're talking deficits and all those things. And one of the areas that, that, because I'd already looked at this research, I brought up the topic of these subsidies that some provincial governments here in Canada, and certainly the federal government, are providing for people to make the transition from a gasoline or diesel-powered vehicle to an electric vehicle. They're giving subsidies. That can't continue. The numbers don't work. No, and for example, look at BC, which is a, a leader in subsidies. So if 25,000 electric vehicles are sold by 2025, subsidies could cost 200 million to comply with BC legislation. And that number could go rise to $600 million by 2030. And these are my numbers. These are according to Jack Mintz of the Fraser Institute. Sorry, the, 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 I don't have the paper here, but it, it is written by Jack Mintz of the Fraser Institute. And uh, he goes on to say that uh, for Canada as a whole, the federal subsidies alone would cost $3 billion if 30% of vehicle sales were electric by then. And the stunning part of this is people are buying electric vehicles, Gord, because they think that it is so much cheaper right now. But if you take a look at uh, the amount of taxes collected on carbon fuels between GST and carbon taxes and fuel taxes, it amounts to about $22 billion. And red, uh, road transportation expenditures total $20 billion. If all the... Uh, taxes on carbon disappear, then frankly, these taxes are going to have to be put on someone. And the most obvious target is the owners of electric vehicles, which means their costs are going to rise and electrical costs are going to have to rise as well, because frankly, 20 billion is a huge hole and we need to have our roads fixed. And that's, uh, we're talking about government budgets here, friends. Again, that's, you know, that would be $22 billion less that the government was receiving. Well, you know, that's not going to happen. Somebody's going to pay the fiddler on that one, and it's going to be the guy you look at in the mirror every morning, you the taxpayer. So fascinating discussion, Ron. So much to chew on here. We want to talk about now, as we take a look in our next episode, are there investment opportunities here 
it, for renewables. I mean, if, if you're passionate about this, and as you say, this is not going to go away. It's not a passing fad. So we have to approach this with, with the right kind of strategy. That'll be our next episode, correct? Absolutely. All right, we're back next week with another installment of Making Money. And, and again, if you have a question about anything we've covered here, please send us your inquiries. You can reach us at letsmakemoney.ca. That's our website. Or through our friends at the cfcw.com website, it'll come directly to our inboxes, and uh, we'll be happy to chew on that for you. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager, I'm Gord Whitehead. We'll talk to you next time. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.